Jamie. I'm one of the elders here in the church. There are only two genders, and a man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. This is so basic and simple, it should be impossible to deny. Even the most basic science can affirm this, and so can anyone of almost any age. However, there's also another important reason to distinguish and talk about this. And that is the Word of God. God Himself declares in the beginning. He made us in His image, in His likeness, male and female He made us. Right? The Word of God. Male and female, He made us in His likeness. God created two genders, male and female. He made them equal and He made them as His image bearers and the pinnacle of his creation. Okay? Amen. We all agree on this? It's a truth. It's very important for us to affirm this. Men and women are unique and have incredible status as God's image bearers. A title that's not given to Scripture to animals, not even the cool ones like dolphins or monkeys, right? Like, we alone are unique as God's image bearers. So affirming our equality as image bearers of God, we also recognize that He made men and women different. Equal, but different. Now obviously we have different physical attributes, but science is learning more and more all the time just how different we are in other ways as well. Neuroscientists have known for many years now how different the brains of men and women are. For instance, men's brains tend to be more lateralized. That means the two hemispheres tend to operate a little more independently during specific tasks. Whereas for women, they tend to operate across both hemispheres. But here's what's really cool. As medical imaging gets better, they can now distinguish the differences between how a male brain functions and a female brain functions from birth. Electrical impulses act differently in the brain across the genders from birth. By three months of age, if they image babies' brains, girls' brains and boys' brains are already responding differently to human speech. I'll let you make a joke about that. You can just put it in yourself, right? So men and women are already responding differently to speaking, all right? So you can identify that in a baby from three months of age. Isn't that cool? That's a wonderful thing. We're made in God's image and we're made differently. Now, as I said, men and women are equally the image bearers of God. But before God, we have different roles to play. And the two genders have different ways in particular to honor God. And that's where Peter is moving this morning. So Peter's been working through submission and how that plays out for Christians. He has challenged us to submit to rulers and authorities, even to submit to cruel masters, if you remember a couple of weeks ago. And what is important to remember is that his greatest reason, his greatest justification of living out this submission 
is to follow the example of Christ, who himself submitted himself to the plan of the Father by going to the cross, who submitted himself to cruel authorities and did not try to lie his way out of it, didn't sin to get out of it, but he went to the cross as the greatest ever example of submission to cruel authority to die on your behalf. Peter says, there's your example. If you want to know what it looks like to live a life of submission, then keep your eyes on Jesus. So as we move to this week, Christ continues to remain our example and the one to whom we must lock our gaze. Now before we begin our passage, we're going to look at six verses this morning. 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6, which entirely talk to wives. Next week, we're looking at one verse for the whole morning, 1 Peter 3, 7, which addresses husbands. Now, you might have a question. Six verses for wives, one for husbands. What's going on there? Well, I don't know whether you've actually pieced this together over the last number of weeks, but Peter is constantly addressing the figures under authority. Have you noticed this? If we go right back, right back to the start of all of this, he talks about submitting to governing authorities without addressing the behavior of the governing authorities. Then he talked about slaves submitting to masters, even cruel ones, without addressing the behavior of the masters. In short, Peter is addressing these comments at those who are under authority. And he's talking about how you honor Christ under that authority. And that's why we have this greater concentration on wives, because he's saying you are to submit to your husband. And that is the flow of this entire thought. However, he doesn't leave husbands out of this entirely. So I want to tell you this. There's only one verse next week, but it is critical and crucial to understanding this passage. So you might have some questions after this week. Well, come back next week and make sure you hear the the follow-up part of this. Now, the reason I think Peter is structuring it all this way is, remember, context always matters, doesn't it? He's writing to whom? Those of you who've been here a while? Come on. Sorry? Oh, church. Right, there's homework for you lot. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile church who are facing what? Persecution. That's our context. That church, did they have any ability to change that situation? No. So Peter is saying to a church under persecution, this is how you continue to honor God regardless of the circumstance you're in. And that is the mentality he has stayed with the whole time. You are in this place, honor God. Right, So he's writing to a church in that circumstance and all of the passage keeps unfolding in that same pattern. So that's really what we're seeing. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter 3 and we're going to read 1 to 6. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word... They may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. 
but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Beth obviously knows what I'm preaching on in the week and, and I was sort of sharing a couple of thoughts with her and she's like, oh, got to make sure I don't do my hair kind of any fancy way this morning. Um, so those who got caught out, sorry, right? Um, now, it starts, wives are called to submit to who? Their own husbands. Not to every man. Important. Wives are called to submit to their own husbands. Now we know from the book of Ephesians that a wife's submission to her husband and his leadership is meant to model the relationship of Christ and the church. Okay, so the marriage, uh, our marriages are a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. A wife's submission to her husband is meant to mirror that of the church's submission to Christ. So that's what the picture is. It's not every woman to every man. Wives, submit to your own husband. Secondly, it applies to all wives. Peter says it applies to all wives, but Peter makes special reference to those women who are married to unbelieving husbands. Okay, this is what is meant by some who disobey the word. Some women may find themselves uh, becoming a Christian after marriage, and so they're married to a man who's not a Christian, or perhaps their husband walks away from the faith, and they're married to somebody who is not a Christian, or perhaps, perhaps they sinfully ignored the Word of God and married a non-Christian as a Christian, right? Either way, you find yourself in a position where you are unequally yoked, and Peter mentions this specifically for wives in that situation, but not only wives in that situation. Whatever the case, Peter addresses this situation particularly. Now first, what this word means, it is a call to voluntary submission. That is what this Greek word means. It is not the case of a husband forcing his wife to submit I mean, that doesn't accord with other passages of Scripture, does it? Like Ephesians, husband, lay down your lives for your wives. Now, this word means, wives, it's a call for you to voluntarily submit yourself to your husband out of your relationship with God. So it's a call on you to voluntarily submit yourself to your husband, all right? So just want to make that really clear. Again, Peter is addressing all wives, but specifically wives whose husbands do not obey the Word of God. And he says, your voluntary submission to your husband means they may be won over without a word. So, this is what it's driving at here. Why specifically wives of non-believing husbands? Because they may be won over without a word. Now, of course, this doesn't literally mean that you don't share the hope that you profess. That's not what it's talking about. 
doesn't mean you don't explain to your husband, if you're in that situation, ladies, about your faith in Christ and about your belief that he paid the penalty of your sin. That's not what Peter is referring to. What Peter is saying this, you will not nag your husband into heaven. Right? Is that clear? That's what Peter is saying. Ladies, you will not nag your husband into heaven. The Scripture's got a lot to say about this, by the way. I I just want to share with you the progression of thought here, because I really like this. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed, written by God. In Proverbs 27, he says this, An endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are alike. The one who controls the wind and grasps oil with his right hand, right? In other words, it's impossible to do. It's just annoying, that dripping tap that keeps you awake at night. And, he, and God's like, that's what it's like. This is the Word of God. If you're married to a nagging wife, that's what... And so God then takes it further. In Proverbs 21, he says, honestly, listen, man, it's better to live on the corner of your roof than share a house with a nagging wife. Like, this is the Word. God's like, seriously, on your roof, pillow, blanket, you're better off. Right? That's the Word of God right there. And then you can picture this guy going, Lord, look, it's a little better, but I can still hear through the window. And God says in Proverbs 21, 19, better to live in the wilderness than with a nagging and hot temper. So God's like, you're right, you know, it's better, just grab your things and head bush. Just go. Right? Like that's, that's the progression of thought here. Peter is saying, trying to nag your husband into the kingdom of heaven is going to have the opposite effect. And it's not how, ladies, you go about winning your husband to Christ. It won't work. It doesn't work. Now, this isn't about being a doormat, as I said. It's not being unable to disagree with your husband. It's just saying, by your conduct, by your hope in Christ, by the way you live, show him that you are so secure in Christ that you don't need to nag, because you trust Jesus. Peter is saying, in this way, they may be won over. And I emphasize may. There's no guarantees given here. It's more the opposite, isn't it? I guarantee you what won't work but by your conduct, by showing them a Christ-like behavior, it may lead them to Jesus. So now we get to the crux. Why, Why do it, wives? Why submit to your husband, especially when there's no guarantees? Husbands may be one when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Now, that's the key word, reverent. That's that same word that we have to explain because it means fear. Who are you fearing? God. You will live this life of submission to your husband because of your deep reverence of God. Because he is the one who has called you to live your life in that way. It's out of your relationship with God, wives, that you will live a life of submission to your husband. It's out of respect of God that will change your behavior. Your submission, your conduct, your godliness 
your character are not based on who your husband is, but on who God is and who he has asked you to be. Does that make sense? Your submission to your husband, your conduct, your godliness, your character are not based on who your husband is, but on who God is and who he has asked you to be. That's important. It's not based around your husband. This is who God has directly asked you to be, wives. This is the role he has given you, regardless of who your husband is. Oh, I wouldn't nag if my husband were only... No. No, no, God says it's out of your relationship to me that you will live a quiet and godly life, not because of your husband. Right, this is the word of God. One commentator put it like this. Wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbours, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. Full stop. Right? It's God's call on your life. It's God's work in your life, independent of your husband. Godly wives revere God first and foremost. Your eyes are locked on Him You serve Him first and foremost. And because your submission is based around your relationship with God, this is critically important. Remember, He's aiming this predominantly, not only, but predominantly at wives of non-Christian husbands. Because it's out of your relationship with God, that also means when your non-Christian husband asks you to do something which contradicts the Word of God, your primary relationship is with God and you will put Him first. He always comes first. That is the other outworking of making sure your submission is based around your relationship with God, first and foremost. All right? So then Peter gives us a little snapshot of what a reverent life looks like for a wife. Verse 3. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewellery or fine clothes. Wives, look plain for Jesus. No, it's not actually what it means. It's not saying this at all. In fact, if you read this literally in Greek, it says, wives, don't wear clothes. That, seriously, what, I like Peter. No, anyway. Um, uh, maybe just, a, no, anyway, I won't go any further with that. But that that's literally what, It says, so to understand what Peter is saying in this this verse is really, really important, isn't it? Because we could go too far down this path, and that's not what Peter's saying. To understand it, we've got to understand the culture of the day. Peter was not the only one writing about this particular issue in the time that this was written. There were a lot of people writing about the fact that wealthy Greek women of the day were spending horrendous amounts of money on jewelry, hair, and brand name clothes. Embarrassing amounts of money. And it was an issue that was growing in society that more and more people were talking about because most of it was done to look seductive. 
And so people are kind of going, now hang on, a woman is more than her looks is essentially what was being written about in the day. And so this is, what was, this is a, a Greek, right? this is not a Christian. This is what a Greek writer of the day wrote. There is nothing that a woman will not permit herself to do, nothing that she deems shameful when she encircles her neck with green emeralds and fastens pearls to her elongated ears, there is nothing more intolerable than a wealthy woman. Right? That, that's someone writing from the day at this excess that was going on. That's what Peter is picking up on. He's picking up on someone whose focus, their sole determination is on their outward looks. And that's just not right, is it? Now, the Bible is clear, isn't it, that men and, woman, men and women should maintain a distinction in appearance. Men should look like men, women should look like women, and we read about that in the Scriptures. And that'll look uh, different across cultures, of course it will. What it means to look like a man in one culture is different from another culture, but the Bible's clear that we should maintain those distinctions. Then we have things like the Song of Songs, an entire book of the Bible Donate, uh, uh, written around the idea of sex within the context of marriage. And in the Song of Songs, we read about a wife dressing nicely, using perfume, looking good for her husband. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Now, let me say something shocking in today's world, which we're not allowed to talk about, but some people are better looking than others, right? It's just true. But all of us should be willing to make an effort for our husband or wife to do the best with what we've got, right? There's nothing wrong with that to look appealing to your husband or wife. And the Scriptures doesn't hide that. I mean, in the book of Job, right at the end, after all the bad stuff has happened, the Scriptures make a point of saying Job is blessed with attractive daughters. The Bible puts it out there, says this is a, a good thing, right? So there's nothing wrong with looks. So Peter's point is not that having nice hair is bad, or wearing nice clothes is bad. That's not his point. His point is this. If you use your looks, money, jewelry, clothes, to mask a lack of character, that's a problem. If you use your money, clothes, jewelry, looks, to mask a lack of character, that's a problem. Today's equivalent might be writing about TikTok or Instagram, one of these things where everyone puts on a filter to give themselves a plastic look, which isn't even real, to pretend they're someone they're not. I read recently about like a Kardashian or someone, I don't actually know these names, but one of them put a baby photo up and they ran the filter over their baby first before they put the baby photo up. Like, seriously, people? Like, this is what Peter's talking about. Then what matters is the substance underneath. It's our character that we should develop. It's our character that we should work on. So it's not that these other things are wrong, but if we spend excessive time, energy, and money on the externals, and we do nothing to develop our inward self, then we are falling short of what God would have of us. Okay? So that is what Peter is driving at. So that's why after saying, look, don't put all your time and energy into those things. In verse 4, he says, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The inside, the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
This probably reminds some of you, 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Okay, the, whole, the, the Lord looks to the inside. He looks to your character and your work. Peter is saying this, wives, who you are on the inside, your hidden person, under the external. By the way, Peter mentions they don't last either. They will be stripped away. But who you are underneath is of eternal value in God's sight. The character of a godly wife is what's of great value in God's sight. Remember, Again, this is not ultimately about your husband. Although you are called to submit to him in this passage, it's ultimately about who God has called you to be. Hence why, again, Peter is saying it's of great value in God's sight. Right? This is about your walk with God. Now, again, I just want to balance Scripture out reasonably well here for us. A quiet and gentle spirit. Now, this doesn't mean, ladies, you can't speak. Right? We think of 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, which seem to indicate that women should be silent. Uh, If they have a question, go home and ask their husbands. But elsewhere in Corinthians, it says, when women prophesy, prophesy with your head covered. And what is prophesy without being speaking in some capacity, right? There's definitely the way that women will speak given to us there in Scripture. I don't mean preaching the authoritative word from the front, but there are ways that women are obviously going to be involved. It's not talking about not speaking, It's about having a godly attitude that accepts the role God has given a wife to be a helper to her husband, to be submissive to his leadership. It's not that you don't have and can't share opinions and advice, but it comes with a gentleness that is grounded in the security of your relationship with God. A security in your relationship with God which says, I don't need to lead, I don't have to be in control, my world is never going to fall apart because I have Christ and He is enough. That is the basis of it. That's what grounds you and gives you the ability to not have to seize control because you trust Christ. And so you can develop a gentle a quiet spirit, a spirit that affirms your husband's lead because you trust Christ. It's that trust, that security, that peace with God that will enable you to have a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's eyes and can have an impact on your husband. Side note, I mentioned... There's a balance to all of this. Next week, we're going to talk to husbands, and there will be a bigger focus on how husbands should be acting, right? So just remember, that is coming as well. 
But Peter then in verses 6 to 7 gives us an example of women in the past to understand what this godly, gentle, and quiet spirit looks like. So Peter just moves through. He says, women, it's your relationship grounded in Christ that will enable you to have that godly and gentle spirit that will enable you to serve your husband. And then he gives us an actual example from Scripture of godly women from the past. And Peter says, these women didn't adorn themselves with the most expensive jewelry, clothes, or elaborate hairstyles, but they adorned themselves, he's using the same word, by submitting to their husbands. Why does a woman, how does she adorn herself by submitting to her husband? Because that's of great value in God's sight. Okay, so it's laying on godly character, and that's of great value in God's sight. So you adorn yourself in godliness by submitting to your husband. So Peter says these women were holy. Now holy means set apart. They were set apart to live for God's glory, which for a godly wife means in submission to her husband. Again, why did they do this? Peter, Peter meant, why were they so willing to do this? What was their motivating factor? And it says, because they put their hope in God. They were convinced that God rewards all those who trust in Him. So they put their hope in God and they were able to live in submission to imperfect husbands. Note, imperfect husbands. Which of you wives has a perfect husband? Only Beth. No. Um, we're, we're all falling way short, right? How can you submit to an imperfect husband? Because you are primarily submitted to Christ. And that enables you, in that hope, in that trust, to give yourself over to serving your husband. So they put their hope in God, which enabled them to live in submission to their imperfect husbands. And he moves to his his final example, and it's of Sarah calling Abraham Lord or Master. That's what every man's looking for late. No, no one wants to be called Lord or Master. So what are we going to tackle here? What, what's going on in this passage? The first thing is this. Sarah obeyed Abraham, is what Peter says. This means that this word submission carries within it the idea of obedience. The key difference of submission, of course, is that it's more than obedience. It's not obedience like you get from a teenager when you ask them to clean their room. Right? You know what that obedience is like. Huffing, complaining, telling you how unfair you are. Um, and right, and eventually you get them to go into their room and then half an hour you come into their room and they're sitting on the bed and have not moved at all. And so then you tell them again that they should clean it, right? That is not, that's obedience and trying to create it. But of course, what we've already seen is submission requires obedience, but it also says a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, so it's obedience combined with a changed attitude. It's obedience combined with a willingness, a gentleness, which is godly, which could in turn be used by God to win your husband's 
life. Right? This is about trusting Christ and changing your very character. Now, reading the whole of marriage through the lens of submission would distort the Scriptures massively, right? There is so much more to marriage than just this idea of submission and headship, isn't there? Like, there's two shall be one. That's a really important thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, we talk about the fact that we actually own each other's bodies, right? It's like a husband's body is not his own, a wife's body is not. Like, there's, there's a lot more going on in Scripture than just this. But nonetheless, you cannot wash away, you cannot ignore, and no matter how many churches try to do it, the responsibility of a wife to follow her husband's leadership. It's point blank there in Scripture, and any attempt to get rid of that is ignoring the Word of God. Full stop, it's there, right? So we should understand that. And the grounding on that, the basis on that, is your walk with God, ladies, not on who your husband is. Right? It's your relationship with Him which will ground you in this reality. Look out next week, men, because I really like talking to men. All right. In the case of Sarah, what's really interesting is that the text alluded to in calling Abraham Lord or Master is Genesis 18, 12. And it's the offhand comment by Sarah to the idea that she's going to become pregnant to Abraham. Remember, they're both really old, really old at this point, right? Sarah's like 99 at this point, like they're old. And God says, by the way, Sarah, you're going to get pregnant and have a child. And Sarah laughs at the idea, but what she says is, will I be pregnant? Will I conceive to my Lord, to my master in this old age, is what she says. And what Peter seems to be finding remarkable here, what, what Peter is alluding to here is this, that rather than simply laughing because he's an old man, she still actually treats him with respect. Rather than simply calling him, oh, you've got to be kidding, that old fella. Rather than laughing, her normal response, this is important, her normal response that flows out of her character that flows out of the fact that she is a godly woman who trusts in God, her normal response is to say, shall my Lord or Master, appropriate language of the day, shall he conceive a child with me in his old age? But her response is one of respect that comes out automatically of her relationship with God. That's what Peter's drawing attention to. Right? It's an off-handed comment. It's a very quick, she's like, oh my goodness, I'm 99 and I'm going to carry a child. How many of you ladies like the thought of that? Right? She's like stunned by this comment. But her natural response is to show respect to her husband. That's what, Peter is draw, that's what Peter's drawing attention to. Right? A natural response that doesn't have to be thought about to show respect to your husband because of your relationship with Christ. Okay? That's what Peter wants us to understand. In closing, 
looking at the final part of verse 6 and summarizing, Peter is saying this, all wives, especially those with unbelieving husbands, center your life on Jesus and His example. Trust in Him so that you can lead a godly life with a gentle spirit. Content to obey and serve your husband, filled with hope in God. So that if it comes to pass that you must choose between obeying your unbelieving husband or obeying Christ, you will always obey Christ without giving in to fear because all of this is centered on Jesus. That is what Peter is saying. It's a challenge, wives, to let the mark of your gentle and quiet spirit be your adornment of being uh, precious in God's sight. Nothing wrong with looking good, but your character is of great value in God's sight. For a wife, that's seen in your gentle and quiet spirit in submission to your husband. Husbands, we'll talk about you next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's always challenging to us. The reality is, men and women, we are sinful. Lord, the original sin in the Garden of Eden is we wanted to be our own God, submitting to no one, not even you. Lord, how difficult it is for us to trust you. And in trusting you, trust the roles that we've been given. Lord, I pray for each wife here this morning. Pray for the women who want to be a wife. Lord, I pray that you keep them focused on you. That the role of gentleness and quietness that you've called them to would flow out, first and foremost, from their deep trust in Christ. Lord, may you so ground the women of this church in the eternal security of Christ that they can be the women of God you've called them to be. To be in that helping, supporting, caring role that you've given them. Lord, we pray that in this church we would reflect genuinely male and female as created in God's image and accept and thrive in the roles that you've given us. Lord, we pray that you would do this in us through your Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.